Hello and welcome to a new semester of Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcasts. We begin the spring semester by welcoming Bob Schieffer back to the Shorenstein Center to discuss the results of the Iowa caucuses and the impact on the 2016 presidential race, as well as a look ahead to the New Hampshire primary. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. We're delighted to have Bob Schieffer back. Um, Bob is one of the few reporters in Washington that uh, covered all four major beats in Washington, uh, the White House, Congress, state, uh, defense, uh, anchor and moderator of Face the Nation uh, for many years, uh, and sometimes also the CBS Evening News, um, and relevant to uh, the discussion about presidential campaigns, he's covered every presidential campaign since the McGovern-Nixon campaign of 1972. Uh, and has moderated uh, three uh, of the presidential debates. Uh, uh, Bob is here as the Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow, um, and uh, it's uh, a fellowship that was created by the Shorenstein family to uh, commemorate Walter Shorenstein, uh, who was the principal founder uh, of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Bob, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, before we start, let me just say uh, one thing. Uh, I really appreciate all of you coming, and I was was thinking about this. Years ago, I was uh, making a talk down at a little school down in Louisiana, Louisiana College, deep in the bayou. It was a beautiful spring day, and the auditorium was absolutely filled. There were kids sitting in the aisle. There were kids up in in the balcony. It was an old-fashioned auditorium, and all these big windows ran down one side of the auditorium, and they'd open the windows. There was no, and kids were sitting in the window sills. And I looked out the window closest to the speaker's podium, and three boys had climbed up into a tree, and were <laughs> and were sitting in the tree listening to me. And and I was really, I mean, I had a little lump in my throat. I was really kind of touched. I said, you know, this is. This is so, I'm so honored that that all of you would come out on a day, a beautiful day like this, to hear me. And the kid on the front row said, well, it's mandatory. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) what I'm so honored about today is that here we've got a full house, and I know it wasn't mandatory. I don't know. (laughs) So, thank you for coming, and uh, go ahead, Tom. Thanks for being with us, Bob. So. Um, you know, the uh, thinking about the Republican race, I mean, the establishment um, in most recent elections has been able to kind of control these nominations. I mean, it's still decided by the vote in primary and caucus states, but through the movement of money, endorsements and the like, um, they've had uh, considerable influence over the selection of the nominee. Uh, and here, coming out of Iowa, the two top vote-getters are outsiders. Uh, Trump and Cruz. So what's your take on this from the standpoint of the Republican establishment? Well, I mean, it's almost, Tommy, goes to the establishment of both parties because look over on the Democratic side and here you have someone who's never even uh, sought office as a Democrat who came within this much uh, of uh, beating uh, Hillary Clinton. So we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But first uh, to the Republican side, and, and you're absolutely right about that. Uh, I went uh, Saturday night 
uh, in Washington to a meeting of a, there's an old group I went as a guest called the Alfalfa Club, and they just get together once a year and tell stories and nominate a, a, a bogus candidate for president, and it, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, to go to, and there are always some uh, some great jokes. I mean, one of the jokes which I just stole and used on television the other day, somebody remarked that uh, <clears throat> Ted Cruz uh, had a better ground game than El Chapo, and, uh, <laughs> and that's just kind of the that's kind of the spirit of the evening, and that's that's how it is. But anyway, you you really find the establishment, if there is such a thing, in both parties uh, at this at at this group. And the thing that I came away was what the establishment Republicans who were there, it had finally dawned on them that Donald Trump, or even worse in their, in their view, uh, Ted Cruz, could actually get the nomination of their party. And, and they were just, uh, they'd been dismayed about that. In the beginning, uh, most people there tend to uh, kind of uh, laugh off, uh, especially Donald uh, Trump is having no chance uh, whatsoever. Uh, but by, by last Saturday night, they'd all come uh, to the conclusion that this, this might happen. And I'll tell you, uh, you remember when uh, Ross Perot talked about that great sucking sound when he said that all those jobs that NAFTA was going to take and, and suck them down into Mexico. Well, the great sound you heard was a great sigh of relief from the Republican establishment when it became clear that Marco Rubio uh, was, was going to run third uh, in Iowa. I think, frankly, that was, that was the biggest story of the night. Obviously, uh, you saw that, uh, you know, Donald Trump, whose whole campaign has been based on I am a winner. Uh, when the winner loses, uh, that's that's pretty big news, I'd say. And and Ted Cruz, credit where credit is due, he did have a terrific ground game out there. Uh, his people actually came out and uh, and he won. And but the fact that uh, Marco Rubio, in the eyes of this Republican establishment did manage to make himself a player, and I think we're now into basically a three-man race uh, from here on in. Uh, I can't tell you how, how pleased that uh, the people in that establishment uh, were to get, to get that kind of news. I mean, uh, because simply they, you know, they're worried about what would either one of those candidates Rubio, who, I mean, uh, uh, Cruz, who appeals, his, his, his support runs deep, but the question is how wide is it? He's very, very popular uh, with the uh, very, very conservative Tea Party uh, kind of Republicans, and he's very, very popular with evangelicals and, and, and the uh, religious right. But how far does that support go beyond that? That, that is the question, and that's the problem that I think that most of them think he's going to have uh, from here on in. Trump, while his support is shallow, I actually had people say to me uh, at that dinner Saturday night, Republicans, mind you, that they thought they could probably uh, be more comfortable with Trump as the nominee, if that should happen, than they would be uh, for Cruz. Uh, 
uh, I wouldn't normally talk about this, but Ted Cruz uh, carries it as, as, as a badge of honor. Uh, he came to Washington uh, and made no effort uh, to make friends, and he succeeded, maybe, <laughs> maybe beyond his wildest dreams, uh, what he had set out to do. Now, his version of history is he takes that as a point of honor. He didn't, he didn't come to make friends. He came to change the system and to change Washington. But uh, it is a fact that he is the single most disliked politician within his own party in Washington that, that I have ever, that I have ever dealt with. I mean, but I mean, you know, when you go out on the Senate floor and call the Republican leader of your party a liar, that's not going to get you many friends among the Republican leadership in in, in, the, in the Republican Party, but that is what he did. And uh, so he his problem is how far can he reach out? Uh, who will come to his aid and want to uh, support him, even if they agreed with him on some things, because of this 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 personal factor of of how how disliked he is. And uh, and again, I would say I. I would be cautious about saying things like that uh, about someone, uh, and I don't mean to impugn his character in any way, but he's very proud of that, or says he is, and so uh, uh, we take it from there. Uh, so, uh, Tom, do you want to uh, talk about Democrats too? Or yeah, I do. I want to ask you first, though. <laughs> so I'm going to. Um, uh -huh start four years earlier than you started covering these campaigns. So let's mm -hmm. go to 68. And uh, there was a lot of anger that played itself out in 1968 in that campaign. I'm, you've covered a lot of campaigns since. Uh, I was at the 68 convention, by the way. Yeah, yeah. but covering from Fort Worth, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but have you seen anger be such a large part of the process as you've seen it this year? No. And that is why I took uh, Donald Trump seriously from the very beginning and why I took these outsiders uh, seriously from the very beginning. I mean, people are frustrated, they're upset, they don't feel their voice is being heard, the politicians come and go, the Congress is elected every two years, but nothing seems to change and nothing ever happens and uh, I think it goes it goes even beyond that I mean it's 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 our culture now that it goes beyond people uh, they have views or they're upset and so forth with the Congress but the same thing happens they're they're upset with just with just our, our uh, their lives in general I mean you call the cable guy and he can't get there and he tells you he'll be there between four and six and he gets there between eight and ten or something like that uh, the other day I was in uh, Tampa uh, I'd gone down there to speak at the Pointer Institute and they had paid for my ticket to go down there it's a first-class ticket from Tampa to Washington and I get to the gate and the guy tries to charge me two dollars for curbside check-in for my bag. <laughs> and may I also add, you couldn't pay in cash. You had to pay with your credit card so the guy who's checking your bag doesn't get the money. The airline gets the $2. And, and I just think over and over, uh, uh, people are, are seeing this kind of treatment and they, they feel nobody's listening to them or paying attention to them. And so why wouldn't they? 
listen to somebody who comes from the outside and says, I can fix that. I think, I think Trump's great, the key to his success was that he was able to make an accurate list of what people were upset about. Now, the other part is, uh, I haven't heard him come up with very many uh, real, what I would call realistic solutions uh, to these problems, but he knows what people are upset about, and, and he played to that uh, from the very beginning, uh, you know, starting with this immigration thing. Uh, but he's proposed no solution. You know, talking about we're just going to send them all back. Well, how? I mean, we didn't have enough buses before Katrina to get the people out of New Orleans. And now you're talking about moving 11 million people out? How are you going to do that? Are you going to tell them just show up at the Greyhound bus station at 8.30 uh, Saturday morning and we're going to take you back to Mexico? Well, who's going to do that? Who, who's going to show up voluntarily to do something like that? So then what are you going to do? Are you going to have police raids to go into these communities and drag these people out, put them on buses? You can't ship them on the airlines, of course, because of all that extra baggage that they charge you for. Uh, <laughs> that would bankrupt the government. <laughs> so he, there's, he has proposed no realistic solution. We're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Who are you going to send the bill to? <laughs> President of Mexico? The mayor of Laredo? Uh, I mean, that's, that's absurd. That, that something like that uh, could possibly uh, happen. And, and where are you going to put this wall? Are you going to put it on this side of the Rio, Grande Valley, or the Rio Grande River and keep the people in South Texas from having access to this river? Or are you going to put it in, are you going to get Mexico to let you build it over there? I mean, it, it just, none of that, uh, once you just start thinking about it, makes any, any sense whatsoever. But I understand. People were so upset, and I understand uh, uh, what his, his appeal was. Now, um, the question now is uh, what happens after Iowa? We know that he turns out not to be infallible. Maybe, uh, the, you know, the, the balloon, uh, the air, uh, sometimes it comes out of a balloon slowly, and sometimes it comes out all at once. But as of right now, I think you still have to say that uh, Trump is the favorite uh, to get to get the Republican nomination. Uh, now that that may change between now and then. But uh, if if you all didn't see it this morning, the paper version of the New York Times, this is the best explanation that I've seen. And there's another graphic on the inside page as to where the candidates from here on in have to do well. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's very very instructive the way the way they've done it and basically you know, um, you know Cruz has to do very very well in these very very conservative states and then and then Trump uh, has a better chance in in the <coughs> less conservative states uh, Rubio uh, he he comes somewhere in between uh, the polls right now show. Uh, uh, in New Hampshire, which is the next stop here, shows uh, Trump up by 16, about 16 points on the uh, on the Republican side, with the Cruz and Rubio, Cruz second, uh, and with Rubio not far behind. So uh, I think uh, I think Rubio uh, does have a chance there. And then you go on down to South Carolina, 
and uh, Trump has an enormous lead there. Uh, and again, uh, it's it's really just almost a no contest down there right now. Uh, so uh, I would have to say, for a while at least, I still uh, think that uh, that Trump is a favorite to uh, to get that nomination. So let me pick that up on the Democratic mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. uh, so Sanders picks up momentum in Iowa. Uh, likely he's going to have more momentum coming out of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at the calendar, um, the early calendar appears to strongly favor Hillary Clinton. I don't think there's any question about that, Tom. And uh, it may be that, uh, and I'm just going, I've got some polls here I want to talk about here. Um, Bernie Sanders, uh, that I don't care how the Clinton administration, uh, the Clinton people, the campaign wants to talk about it. That was a victory for for Bernie Sanders, uh, and it was it was a clear victory. Uh, I don't care what the numbers are. Uh, I think uh, Sanders would certainly be the uh, be the favorite in New Hampshire. It's his next door state uh, to his home state, and people always do well when or better than other people do when when it's a state close to where to where they come from. So, I and and right now. Uh, Let's see, what have I got here? I've got uh, Clinton. Uh, no, I mean, no, that's South Carolina. Uh, I, I got Sanders up by 18 points uh, in, in, uh, in New Hampshire. And, and I, I would guess he, he, he's going to win there. But <clears throat> the other part of it is I, I'm not sure that uh, the Sanders campaign uh, can go much much beyond New Hampshire, at least right now, that's my view. I mean, Hillary Clinton right now, and th these are polls before Iowa, Hillary Clinton has a 29-point lead uh, in South Carolina right now. And, and let's not forget, in the minds of many people, African Americans, Barack Obama was not the first black president. The first black president, in their view, was Bill Clinton. He is enormously popular and still enormously popular uh, in, in the black communities. And they will come down there to South Carolina. He'll be in every black church, uh, you know, every, <laughs> all the time, not just on Sundays. Uh, he'll be there. And uh, I, I just don't see, uh, I don't see where Bernie Sanders uh, goes, especially in South Carolina. And I think it'll be equally difficult for him uh, uh, from 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 then on, you know what? One of the kind of the ironic things uh, about the uh, Clinton campaign, she is going to go march through the South, and she's going to win all of those primary uh, uh, votes, uh, delegates, uh, as it were. But she's going to be, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, where because most of the Democratic votes uh, vote in that state, a large part of it, of course, is is African American, and that that will be her great strength. But these are all states, and I think this is one of the things that that uh, shows, you know, that her campaign needs to be better. Uh, those are all states that she has absolutely no chance, in my estimation, of winning. Uh, in the general election. Hillary Clinton's not going to win Mississippi. She's not going to win Georgia. She's not going to win Alabama. Uh, uh, the Republicans are going to win that, uh, unless just 
something extraordinary happens. But that's where she will win, uh, win the delegates that will lead her to the nomination. But uh, if I could just, just talk a, a little bit about, uh, about Hillary Clinton. Some of these polls in, in Iowa were very, were very, very telling. Uh, when you looked at, and these were uh, exit polls, uh, this is CBS uh, stuff, in Iowa, the people who cared about health care, Hillary Clinton won those people 59 to 38. They, they like what she says about health care a lot better than what Bernie Sanders says. Uh, economy, people worried about jobs, Hillary Clinton wins those people in Iowa 51 to 42. Uh, Sanders comes up there. Terrorism, people that are concerned about that, she takes that group 65% to 28%. Income inequality, uh, Bernie Sanders has really hit a chord there. He, he wins those people 61% to 34%. And then you go down to personal qualities. Among the people who think uh, who's, who has the best chance to win, the Iowa voters picked Hillary Clinton 77% to 17 I mean, she's overwhelmingly the choice of those people. But then you say, who is the one that cares most about you personally? Bernie Sanders wins that 74% to 22%, which I found pretty stunning. And here's, here's a very interesting one to me. Who do you consider honest, most honest and trustworthy? Bernie Sanders, 83%. Hillary Clinton, 10%. Then you go back, but who has the most experience to do the job? And that would be Hillary Clinton, 88% to 9%. So right there, you see uh, what the problems are uh, in, 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 her, in her campaign. And it's, I think, I think she's a much better candidate than the campaign uh, that she has, has been running, quite frankly. And uh, to me, and this is again subjective, uh, it seems to me her presentation is, is uh, wooden, it seems rehearsed, uh, it's heavily consultant driven. You kind of have the feeling that she's not going to say anything unless she's just, you know, really gone over it about every single word of what she's going to say. Uh, I think she's got to get out and mix it up more. I think she's got to, you know, take on the spontaneity, do do more interviews, uh, uh, more more back and forth, and, and uh, I, I think she's going to have to. I, I don't think, in the end, uh, because of some of the numbers I just cited, I don't think I don't think Bernie Sanders will wind up with the nomination. Uh, but right now, uh, she's got to she's going to have difficulty. I think. Uh, in the general election. I mean, I think she'll get the nomination, but she's going to have to find a better way to present her case, or, or she's going to have, I mean, it, it's going to be close, I think, and uh, I think she would, uh, she would have, she's right now, uh, it, it would be, uh, it'd be very difficult from her. You know, and there's also, when you look at these numbers, that only 10% of the people consider her uh, honest and trustworthy, or, or more than than Bernie Sanders, that that tells you that this email thing has had an impact, 
And uh, I think what it does, it causes people, young people don't know anything about the Clinton administration when they were in power and some of the controversies and so forth. Uh, older people like me, I mean, we, we remember all that. But the, the older voters tend to, when you start going on about this email and stuff, it just reminds them, I think, of previous controversies. And, uh, and, and the other part that I find very interesting is that, uh, and I, I had the number written down and now I've forgotten it, but uh, Bernie Sanders scores much, much higher. I mean, much, much higher, at least five to one or six to one, I can't remember, among young people. And she is not getting young people at this point. Uh, they like him uh, overwhelmingly. And if she's going to put the kind of coalition together uh, that Barack Obama did, for example, well, what was in that coalition? Uh, it was young people, it was minorities, and, and, uh, and it was women. And uh, right now she's, she's missing a big component of, of what was a winning strategy for Barack Obama. So I think Democrats have trouble uh, down the road. And uh, what they do have going for them is this constant barrage of, of anti-immigration talk that we're hearing on the Republican side. Uh, anybody who thinks that's going to help the Republicans in November, I uh, better kind of rethink that uh, in, in my view. Uh, for this, this simple reason, and I always go back to this, Mitt Romney got a larger percentage of the white vote than Ronald Reagan did. A larger percentage of the white vote than Ronald Reagan did, which really shows you how the demographics uh, in, in this country are changing. I, I wrote this down, I just want to read a couple of stats along that line to show you. In 1960, 85% of American voters were white, 10% were black, 4% were Hispanic. By 1970, it was 83% white, 11% black, 5 Hispanic. 2,000, 69% white, 12% black, 13% Hispanic. And then by 2010, it was 64% white, 12% black, 16% Hispanic, and 5% uh, Asian. By 2020, it will be 60 white, 13% black, 19% Hispanic, and 6% Asian. So anybody who thinks you can write off the fastest growing segment of our population and thinks that they're going to win national office is, is just simply wrong. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Republican congressmen can vote against immigration reform and it's a fairly easy vote for them because when you go through the districts most uh, Republican congressmen uh, represent districts where you have a fairly uh, small Hispanic uh, population. But that is not reflective of the country a as a whole. And uh, uh, look at what happened in uh, Virginia in the last presidential election where you had a huge Asian vote there. That, that people had, you know, politicians hadn't even thought about that. They were thinking about African-Americans, Hispanic, and all that. 
and then you had this enormous turnout uh, of Asians and you know so here you wind up in 2012 uh, with the uh, one of the most conservative states uh, in the Union winds up with a Democratic governor a Democratic lieutenant governor and a Democratic attorney general and it was all because uh, Republicans had simply misjudged uh, who who the electorate was at that point. Good, Bob. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to open it up for questions. And again, uh, students first. Uh, and if you could, uh, would you identify yourself when uh, in asking your question in the back? which Rubio can do well take place after Super Tuesday. Yes. And I wanted to ask, do you see it that way? And if Cruz and um, uh, Trump dominate until Super Tuesday, can Rubio, will they get all the momentum or can Rubio still come up after Super Tuesday and take it? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And I do agree with that, uh, with what they have there. But I think coming out of Iowa, as he did, uh, the question is, is Rubio going to do a lot better in New Hampshire than some people thought he was? And I, I'm just going to make a off the top of my head guess. I think he will. And I think that's going to be one of the keys. And, and, and if he can, you know, build uh, in New Hampshire, uh, that's going to be a statement that will get a lot of press attention, just like uh, his showing uh, in, in, uh, in Iowa did. And I think also... The other thing is that I, I think you're going to see, you know, Rand Paul, I don't know if you all know this, he dropped out today. Uh, and so now there are 10. But, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think we'll be down to about six after, after New Hampshire. I mean, what, what's going to be interesting is to see what these other kind of so-called uh, insider candidates, if you can call Chris Christie that, Jeb Bush, uh, John Kasich, uh, and uh, now Rand Paul is gone. Uh, they're all going to turn their fire now on Marco Rubio, I think, because they see what's going on. And uh, is that going to make a difference? Uh, I, I'm not sure at this point that I that I think it is. But I say I think we'll have at least three of those people who who will drop out after we get get out of, out of New Hampshire. And uh, I'm going to guess that Jeb Bush is going to stay in through South Carolina. But, you know, I, I uh, ask our uh, pollster, Anthony Salvato, who runs the CBS News New York Times poll. Uh, I spent uh, some time with him before, before Iowa, and he said, I just don't see that happening. He said, I don't see. He said, if the Bush campaign were going to do something, it would have done it. And... Uh, you know, one of the interesting, the very interesting things, I think, about this campaign, and it's gone a little bit unnoticed, I can never remember a campaign in my lifetime where political ads didn't make a big difference. And the guy who had the money to buy these, you know, awful things, these ads that we all, you know, want to go to take a shower after we've been bombarded <laughs> with them. Uh, but the reason candidates ran those things is because they worked. And I can't remember a campaign where somebody didn't dump a bunch of, of uh, ads in uh, that it didn't move the needle in some way. And, and if you, you look at the Bush campaign, here's somebody who raised $115 million. I mean, his super PAC did. And one reason he was so 
long in, in declaring as a candidate. He wanted to, you know, be able to legally keep raising money uh, for the super PAC, and so he didn't announce. I think, I think in retrospect, that was probably an error. I think he got off to a really slow start, a late start, and the $115 million, and they've been spending, you know, like crazy in that super PAC. It hasn't seemed to make one bit of difference at all, not one. And uh, uh, so I kind of think that's a good thing. I mean, I, you know, uh, not not because I don't like Jack, Jeb Bush. I actually do. He, he's a very nice person, and I certainly think he uh, has the qualifications uh, to run for president and, and all of that. But, you know, I uh, and I vowed I was not going to talk much about this because the last time I was here, I, I spent most of my time talking about it. But what's happened here is our whole electoral system has become so overwhelmed by money that serious people just no longer want to fool with it and don't want to be a part of it. You know, they, they, they just think I have more to do than to just spend 40 or 50 or sometimes 70 percent of my time begging people for money. I don't want to do it. And so they don't. And what we're left with is the people who are willing to do that. And I think uh, when you look at what we have now, uh, and you take it from, from the far left to the far right, this is a much different set of people than, than we, we have seen before. I'm not saying they're bad people, but and at every level of politics now, it's a different group of people who, who seek office. Yes, please. <clears throat> yeah. My name is John Gibbs. I'm a mid-career MPA student here from Lansing, Michigan, originally. My question is about something you did talk about briefly, and that is if you look at the white vote since about 1970 and look how it's moved from that point until now, it's becoming increasingly Republican to the point where in states like Mississippi and Alabama, you see like 80 or 85 percent of the white vote going Republican. And some people down there even say, if you're black or Democrat, you're white Republican. Exactly. It's almost like that. And so you mentioned that Mitt Romney in 2012 got he won the white vote by about 60-40, which is a landslide margin. So my question is, do you see the Democratic Party losing the white vote? And is Trump kind of genius for going after the white vote, if that's the case? Well, I mean, the Democratic Party lost the white vote in the South, you know, in 1964. I mean, you know, the famous statement that proved so true that Lyndon Johnson said, he said when he passed those two civil rights bills, he said, I've lost the South for my party for two generations. Uh, you know, when I was growing up in Texas, there wasn't even a Republican Party. You know, there was the occasional person that nobody paid any attention to that may have moved down there from, you know, Boston or someplace that said they were a Democrat, <laughs> you know, said they, <laughs> or, you know, someplace else. And, uh, and they, they would, you know, generally be liberal Republicans because that's what came from this part of the world. But they, <clears throat> there just weren't any. And then, you know, 1964, you know, it, it, it all flipped. But what what is worrying, what is really worrying Republicans now, uh, mainstream kind of Republicans, is they remember 1964. And they remember uh, Republicans nominating somebody who was outside the mainstream of their party. Barry Goldwater, who I would add, was a very decent and good person. You know, and 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 uh, in contrast, say to Ted Cruz, very well liked, mm -hmm. 
by his Senate colleagues, and uh, they considered him a man of integrity. And but Barry Goldwater said, "I'd rather be right than president," and he got his wish. I mean, he took the Republican Party over the cliff to the largest uh, landslide defeat in the history of uh, American politics up in, up until that point. And that's that's what a lot of these. I think mainstream Republicans are so worried about it. You know, the fact of the matter is, and I was thinking about this the other day, when a political party nominates someone outside the mainstream of their party, they generally don't do very well. And, you know, we're seeing right now the Republican Party tearing itself apart and trying to decide what it is. And I saw that very same thing happen, and Tom talked about it, in 1968. I was at the Democratic uh, National Convention in 1968. The party tore itself apart, and then they lost that election, and then they nominated George McGovern, again, a very good man, a man of real integrity, but far outside the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And at that 1972 convention, they threw out all the big city bosses like Mayor Daley uh, and people like that. And what happened to them? Exactly the same thing that had happened to the Republicans in, in 1964. And, and I, it seems to me, if you look at those, those two races, that's, that's kind of a, a warning to all parties. You know, you better not get too far outside your mainstream. It's, it's well and good to try to reform and all that, but the, the parties that go outside the mainstream don't do very well. It's a very good question. Yes. Yasmin. Uh, Yasmin Raji, I'm an MPP uh, at the Kennedy School. Um, I'm really curious, obviously, what happens in the Senate and whether Democrats take back the Senate is going to have a big impact on how the next president uh, or how effective the next president is. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about kind of what you predict happening in the Senate, and if there, I mean, obviously there's going to be some linkage to what happens on the presidential side, but what your predictions? Well, are. I, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. But I tell you, that's that's what people like Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, are, are so concerned about right now. Uh, they want somebody at the top of that ticket that's going to help them. I mean, you know, all politics is about personal survival. That comes first. <laughs> and, 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 and for them, that's the local news. Is the guy at the top of that ticket going to help me or is he going to hurt me? And uh, uh, I think they're really worried about, you know, if, uh, well, if somebody like Cruz, uh, what, what, what impact will that have? I think, I think the Democrats will pick up seats next time around because I guess there are more Republicans up this time last time around it was more Democrats were up but uh, I think I think the Senate is very much in play in this next in this uh, election I really do we don't talk about that too much right now uh, and, and we never do you know because the focus is so always oh, so intense on who's going to be president that we we tend to you know overlook that and uh, which is in some ways as important as who winds up in the White House Okay, so the floor is wide open. Please. Chuck Kogan, the Kennedy School. I think you should add to your presentation the fact that Obama was asked whether he agreed that Bill Clinton was the first black president, and Obama replied, I'll have to see how he dances. <laughs> <laughs> I will add that. John, John please. <laughs> Point well taken. 
John Reedy, Shorenstein Advisory Board Emeritus. Uh, so I have a question. Let's say we're on the verge of the Republican Convention. Is it conceivable that we could have a really exciting thing with three or four candidates? I hope so. I mean, that <laughs> Speaking for every reporter in America, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I think there is a possibility. I that really do. Fun. I, I, I think everybody wants that to happen except David Rhodes, the president of CBS News, because he knows how much it's going to cost. If we <laughs> I'm just teasing about that. But uh, yes, I, I think it is absolutely uh, a possibility. And, and you know, with, with the emergence of Rubio, if, if Rubio does emerge as, a, as an alternative and who seems to have a chance, I think that might even in, increase the possibility of that. So, uh, but I, I tell you, it, it's like, you know, being a reporter, we have to be careful not to uh, convince ourselves that something we're wishing for, just because it'd be so much fun, is actually going to happen. So I, I have to put a, put a governor on my own thinking about that. But, uh, but uh, I, I do, I, I do think that's a possibility. Chris, please. Yes, great. Um, Chris Russell, I'm with Belfer Center and formerly Shorenstein Center. Um, putting on your media hat, which you just mm -hmm. brought up, uh, on the question of perception is reality, and particularly with television, I'm wondering, uh, as a co-political junkie, whether you watched all the Sunday shows, and again, the candidates in all of these different formats, Two things. I think, again, the picture of Ted Cruz, which I'm not as familiar with him, but one-on-one on, -one on Meet the Press, he was really different than he sounds in those. He was very down-to-earth and completely different personality and very, you know, not the one that many mm -hmm. people know and understand. And similarly on uh, Bernie Sanders, people the pundits pointed out, you know, he never talks about himself. That I mean, people like him because he's speaking to them. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you were uh, back in your seat um, at Meet the Press or just Face the Nation, actually. But, oh, did I say Meet the Press? Sorry. <laughs> face the Nation. CBS, Face the Nation. Um, what would your question be, and how do you perceive the way they're being portrayed by the media, and particularly in the television circuit um, that you've been in for so long? Yeah, I, uh, On Facebook. you know, I would say, let me also say this uh, about Ted Cruz. He is very smart. Nobody, nobody says that this is not a smart guy. He's very smart. Uh, he, he's, uh, and it has been viewed that way as he in all the jobs uh, that he's had along the way. I guess the job, I mean, I guess the question that I would ask him is why doesn't anybody like you? I mean, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I mean, I'd really be interested in hearing what he would have to say. And I mean, I know what he would say. He would say, that's not the point. I came here to change things. I didn't come here to make friends and all that, but, but it would be, it would be an interesting discussion. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's. I think it's also a fair question uh, because you know it is part of what the uh, political dialogue is right now. For Donald Trump, I mean, my question would be, how's your foot? You know, he. Uh, 
He evaded military service because he got a, a medical uh, deferment because he had a bone spur and, and I, in his heel. And I want to know, would he be able to carry out the duties of the presidency? I mean, <laughs> what if he had to march in the St. Patrick's Day parade? Could he, could he do that? I think you might could have a little fun with him, actually, uh, along that line. And uh, I, I would go back. Uh, you know, I'll tell you another question that I would ask Donald Trump uh, in all seriousness. Did you really mean that about John McCain when you said he was a loser? And do you do you kind of regret that? Was that taking it too far? Uh, I would ask him about a lot of the things he said. I mean, one of the things that, that happens, and, and all reporters try to do this, we always try to ask the questions that haven't been answered. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, that haven't been asked. And, and I think uh, coverage of him, uh, I think we ought to go back and, and re-ask some of the questions uh, that he's, he's already uh, been asked. I, I'd like to know if, it, if he, he regrets saying any of those things. Does he really mean that? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, it's not rocket science or anything, but, but journalism is not rocket science. Journalism is asking obvious questions. The biggest re mistake that young reporters make is saying, well, I don't want to ask him that question. He'll think I'm dumb. It's not about whether he thinks you're dumb. It's asking him and finding out why he says the things he says. And the greatest mistake that young reporters can make is to assume that they know what the guy's going to say uh, if you ask him a certain question. I can't tell you how many times I've regretted, you know, Thank you. Well, I know what he'll say about that, so I don't ask him. And then somebody like Barbara Walters comes along. <laughs> it's on the front page of the New York Times the next day or something. So uh, that would be my take. That's a good question. Marilyn, please. Hi, I'm Marilyn Thompson. I'm a new uh, Shorenstein fellow from Politico. Uh, Bob, based on what you know from the past in prosecutions, over leaks of classified material. Uh, do you feel that Hillary Clinton has a serious legal issue with this email fiasco? You know, Marilyn, that's a, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I know the answer. I'm not sure if it's a serious problem, but she's got a problem. And it's already, I think, had an impact on how people perceive her. Uh, you know, is it... Is it legal or almost legal? Does everybody do it? Is it sort of legal? Whatever it is, the rule was you're not supposed to do that. That's not the way a government official is supposed to handle their email. And, and I, I still think the, the real question that's never been answered to my satisfaction is why did she do it? What was it that motivated her? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, but she did choose to do it, and, and it just raises questions. And anytime something raises questions, uh, that's not good. Uh, and you know, I mean, she could be indicted. I don't think she will be. I, I'm just saying that, uh, but that's possible. And then what happens if that happens? I, I don't know. But I know that the FBI director is a very stand-up, straight shooter. 
uh, and uh, we have seen that in the past. And uh, I mean, he will not play politics on this. I mean, I just just don't think he will. And if he thinks there's something that uh, is indictable, I mean, he'll he'll recommend. I think that they uh, do that. But uh, I don't know how this comes out. But I know that so far, it hasn't helped her in the least. Okay, please. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Greg Beyer with. Uh, I am Greg Beyer with uh, Social Sphere. We use all the Facebook data to understand what's going on in the elections. Um, what have you found out? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. Uh, 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 so, why has the press given Donald Trump such a pass? I mean, there's not been a lot of scrutiny on him. Well, if, I, if you take his wealth that he inherited, index it to the S and P, he's underperformed the index. And he goes on and on about making money. So he's getting a pass. Why? I don't think I, I don't agree with the premise of your question. Uh, that's that's the question I don't know the answer to. I don't think we we we've given him a pass. I mean, the questions have been asked, and then he gives an answer, and people just move on. I mean, it, it doesn't stir up anything. I mean, I said from the beginning, and when I came up here last semester, and Tom knows this, I said, you're going to have to take uh, Donald Trump seriously. He's a serious candidate, and here's why. And I want to tell you there are a lot of eyes rolling when, when I said that. Well, I was right about that, it turns out. What I missed along the way is about six times he said things that I said to myself, well, that's it. When he said what he said about John McCain, I said, nobody's going to survive that. There's too many veterans in this country. And, and you know, I mean, I was in the Air Force three years. I never heard a shot fired in anger, but I took, I took great pride in that. And when somebody insults a member of the military, uh, you know, that personally, that, uh, that, that uh, irritates me. Uh, when he said what he said about Megyn Kelly, I thought, boy, that's... Nice to see you, Donald, but we won't be seeing you much after that. And what happened? Nothing. And then, and then he, he, you know, and probably to me, the most awful thing was when he made fun of that poor reporter from the New York Times who had that disability. And I thought, well, surely, there's no way. And it, it, it is funny. And here's what I think has happened. I think people are so upset and and. and they're, they're so happy to see somebody speak out on these things and say things like they wish they had the nerve to say to their boss. You know, I mean, a lot of his support is that take this job and shove it crowd, you know, who feel, you know, that they never, never get a break on anything. And I think they like his attitude and, and somehow or another they don't, they don't hear what he says, you know. And it's... It's very interesting to me, and I think part of that is is part of the influence that social that social media has had on on our culture, in some ways. Uh, I, I did a little essay on the uh, evening news uh, uh, Monday when I said, you know, uh, you know the the campaign dialogue this year is more like a thread on a blog post. You're a jerk. No, you're the jerk. No, you're a bigger jerk. No, you're a blank, blank jerk uh, than it is on the, the kind of the political dialogue uh, that we're used to. I mean, uh, this is a campaign that's gone from inane to profane. Uh, 
in, in many ways. I mean, who in the world would stand up and say we're going to bomb the, you know, stuff out of them? Uh, but yet he says that in in front of a crowd of a thousand people, and everybody just laughs. And I mean, they like it. So I mean, we're we're in the midst of of great change in our culture right now. Much of it brought on by social media, and I think that's just part of it. Yeah. So let's go toward the back. Okay. I, I can't see your hands back there so much. Anybody? Yeah, please. My name is Murat, uh, HKS uh, student. Uh, is international agenda of any relevance, any importance in this campaign? <laughs> <laughs> international events are very important, <laughs> let me tell you. And there's some real problems out there. I mean, the world is in in turmoil on, on many fronts, and I don't have to take those off. Uh, right now, it doesn't seem to play that big a role. I mean, I think in a general sense, a lot of people sense that the United States is in a weaker position than it was, uh, and, and I think that's, I think that's a, a, an obvious and, and a very uh, serious issue. But I would guess that in the end, this campaign would always, will come down to what they always do, uh, e economy. You know, the, uh, the economy and, and as far as the international events, the, the vote for president, at least in the past, is different than any other vote that we take uh, in America. I mean, if you're voting in a city council race or a county commissioner race, you vote on the issues. This guy said they're going to build. He's going to let them build many warehouses in your neighborhood. And this guy said I'm not going to let them do that. You know, and so you go vote for the guy that you know is going to do the best job and you know keep the streets paved in in your neighborhood. It, it's it's issues, but I think in the end, what causes people to vote for a president is the one that they feel most comfortable with uh, in time of a crisis. And, and that generally seems to be uh, the way we've chosen our presidents in the past. And uh, frankly, I hope that will continue to be the way uh, we choose them. And uh, right now, there's a lot, a lot of questions to be discussed on that front uh, on all of the on all of the pre uh, candidates. But it's a really good question. Where yeah. are we? Please. Bob, Dan Kennedy, current uh, John Shorenstein Fellow. I'm with Northeastern University. Uh, is there a circumstance under which you think Michael Bloomberg would get into the race, and can you imagine a scenario in which he might actually be able to win it? Um, yes and no. First question, second question. Uh, I think he is seriously, he had decided he wasn't going to do it, uh, and I know from about as good a source as you can get, uh, so you can guess who that might be, that he is seriously thinking about it now and will decide in about a month as, as to what he's going to do. Uh, he might wait as long as after Super Tuesday to try to get in, but we'll, we'll see. But yes, he is seriously considering it. I asked our pollster, uh, Anthony Salvano, the other day, the very question you asked me, uh, can he do it? Uh, I think if any independent candidate could do it, it would be Michael Bloomberg. And I think he's absolutely as qualified as anybody running 
uh, perhaps more so than, than some of the candidates to be president. But it's very, very difficult to, to get on the ballot in all 50 states. He has the money and the ability to do that, and I think he probably could. But uh, here's, here's what our pollster said. He said, think of it this way. He said, let's suppose he gets on the ballot and he wins all the battleground states, all of them, which he probably wouldn't, but let's just say that he did. If he did that, he would get 100 electoral votes. Uh, that would mean there's still 170 electoral votes, and you need 270. That's what you need to get elected. And that 170 votes would be in what what he calls the rock rib states, the states that Republicans and Democrats take for granted. And he said, I just don't think he can find 170 electoral votes there. In other words, he's not going to win Mississippi. He's not going to steal Alabama from the Republicans. I mean, and, and that's where his difficulty will be. Now, now, can he do it? Sure, anything is possible, but I think to me, that's the clearest explanation of just how difficult uh, it would be to do that. We have time for one more question. I saw a hand over. I was going to ask a few more questions. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry. My name is David Cullen. I'm a retired uh, professor at the medical school. I was in the Air Force for two years during the Vietnam War. And I'm looking at it from a non-Kennedy uh, school perspective. I've never had the opportunity to ask a question of a major news figure like you, and I see the media as playing a very significant role in not doing their job in terms of the rise of Trump and Cruz and, and some of the other uh, people because they don't ask the follow-up question, what is the basis for the opinion you've just expressed? The media asks a lot of questions, but they don't ask, the, they don't go into that follow-up, and I'm wondering if you could Sure. On that and, I think and that's how uh, they can do a better job because uh, once you ask people like Trump, what's the basis to say that uh, Obama is the worst president in history? That the Accountable Care Act is the worst thing that's ever happened to people. Uh, he, then you can start to find out either he doesn't have that basis, or if he does, then you can deal with it. I, I think it's a perfectly uh, legitimate question to ask. I, I would not go as far as you did in saying we, we don't always do that. We do uh, do that a good part of the time, but uh, sometimes those answers, uh, we're so overwhelmed by information from so many sources right now that uh, it, never, it never sees the light of day or it's just completely overshadowed. The big problem right now and what is different uh, on the media front right now is that there are so many sources of information now and there's some you know in the mainstream media uh we don't publish or broadcast something unless we've gone to some trouble to to check it out and find out it's a, if it's true and we obviously don't publish things if we we think it's not true but you know if you're some kid sitting in mama's basement at three o'clock in the morning and you decide to post something on a blog uh, that person generally doesn't follow the same standards uh, that we do in the mainstream media, and yet this stuff gets out there, and, and it becomes uh, part of the dialogue. And what we're seeing different this time around than we did in any previous ones, this has gone far beyond uh, people that 
that listen only to MSNBC get one set of facts and people that listen only to Fox News get another set of facts. We now have stuff out there that is just totally wrong and made up and made up for a reason. Uh, Barack Obama is going to settle 250,000 Syrian refugees in this country. Totally made up out of whole cloth, totally without foundation. A 1996 interview in People magazine, Donald Trump says, if I ever get into politics, I'm going to run as a Republican because they're the dumbest people in the world and they'll believe anything on Fox News. Totally made up. Never was such an interview. Never said anything like that. And yet, once this stuff gets out there, there was a very serious discussion on talk radio uh, out in uh, Iowa, and I think it was two weeks ago, about a report, and I mean this was discussed seriously, about a report that Barack Obama had sent word to Hillary Clinton that if she lost the election, if she were nominated and lost, that he would just stay in the White House, he wouldn't leave. <laughs> and I mean this went on for a week, you know, this discussion back and forth, is it, you know, and all that, and, and so that's, that's where we are right now. And yeah, we're trying to ask the follow-up questions, and, and I like to think that we do more than maybe you think we do, but there are times when we ought to be. We ought to ask uh, more follow-up. I mean, I, I always thought, that, and you, you, you just touched on it there, to me, that's, that's the most important follow-up. Well, how do you plan to do that? You know, what, what is the basis of that? And, uh, and so I, I certainly take your point, but I think that is just, one part of the problem. And you know, another thing that is, that's made all of this more difficult is the, uh, the uh, newspapers that are going away. And to me, that is the real crisis in journalism. It's, it's not somehow or another, I think the national news will figure out a way to take care of itself. But if we don't develop in this country some kind of an entity that does what local newspapers used to do and what we used to expect of them. We're going to have not only uh, no place for, for politicians at those levels to get their message out in a place that we'll we believe it, but we'll have corruption at a level that we've never seen in this country. And, and we got to figure out some way uh, not not to let that happen. And if you if you know the answer to how we can do that, I hope you'll call me because anyway, that's what all of us in, in uh, journalism right now are thinking about and uh, trying to avoid. Well, listen, thank hey, you Chief all very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Love being here. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com